The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed in the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to the Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is Royston Guest, author of Built to Grow, How to Deliver Accelerated, Sustained, and Profitable Business Growth. He's the CEO of PTI Worldwide. Um, he says that one of the greatest assets of your business walks out of the door every night. What are you going to do to get them to return next day, inspired, motivated, and enthused to be the best they can be? Uh, Royston Guest shares a blueprint to help entrepreneurs, business owners, and professionals understand the guiding principles of accelerated, sustained, and profitable business. Uh, he's featured on the BBC Radio, uh, the BBC Radio, Amazon, and The Guardian. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you here, Royston. Hi, Catherine. It's great to be with you. Well, I guess the assumption is that a, uh, a lot of employees are walking out the door dissatisfied, unhappy, and not doing the best job they could do within the organization or the corporation. So you have a guide for us, or you have a guide for businesses as to how to keep your or one's employees happy and productive. So what is it? So let me give you the context into my thinking where this comes from. And the analogy that I talk about in Built to Grow is a story about a guy called John. And the John is a fictitious character who doesn't feel the same about work anymore. And something's changed for him. And where he used to approach it with commitment and drive and happy doing extra hours because he truly believed in where the business was going and what they were doing as an organization, they were in it together. But something changed, something's different. And what happened is a new management structure made him voiceless and depressed. Decisions he was once part of were now made behind his back. And what happens, the result is that the discretionary effort, going the extra mile, working beyond contractual obligation have been withdrawn. And emotionally, John checks out. The goodwill is gone. He takes more sick days. Now, that hypothetical example describes a common and what I think is a real scenario in businesses all over the world today. And worryingly, for many businesses, it's considered the norm. Now, you may not even realize it, but the chances are that for our listeners today that they may well have in their business a John, a singular character, or even more examples like John in their business. Royston, let me ask you this. Why do you think that's happening? You said this is happening, uh, your, your assumption is that it's happening worldwide in businesses all over the world. Uh, why, why is that happening and why is that happening now? I mean, uh, you're, just, you're describing a, an employee, John, who is really dissatisfied, unhappy, and not feeling like he's part of the organization. Uh, is that because things change so quickly because things uh, at, the, at the top, leadership at the top changes and, and employees don't expect it? Or what's the reason for it? So there's a couple of nuances and some of them are universal principles that um, have stood the test of time. But also 
The fundamental principle is understanding about how people are wired, what motivates them, and why they do what they do every single day. And I think I'm 44 years of age, and if I think back to what I used to call the classic economics, and when I was young, when I was first starting in my career, it was all about your pay and your bonus, it was about your role, it was about your annual review and about the job. Now, the average graduate coming out of university will have 15 jobs in their career. It's no longer about pay and bonus. It's about meaningful work and mission and purpose. It's about their career development. It's about how do you really play to their strengths. And it's about employers being genuinely interested in my life and what I'm trying to achieve. So the dynamics are changing in terms of how people are wired and what they're looking for in their employment. So I think, you know, those latter things I talk about, about mission and purpose, about strengths, about my life is, you know, the environment that we're operating in today, which is all about the behavioral economics, not classic economics. Well, what about the word loyalty? Because you're describing, say, when you were in, <clears throat> in, in that kind of a position, isn't there something about loyalty that's, that, that's, I don't know if it's missing today, but it's not the same kind of loyalty, especially if you're going to have a job for 15, uh, 15 different jobs or 15 different uh, employments throughout your career. So what does that say about loyalty? Does that loyalty to the company, loyalty to the people you work for, does that fit in here or not? Yeah, 100% it fits in, Catherine. And, you know, then the key, the key guiding principle for me with loyalty is that loyalty has to be earned. It's a two-way process. And where employers are focused on what is their compelling value proposition for, for their customers and clients, and, you know, organizations spend so much time on that, I think one of the things that they are missing is actually thinking about what's the employee value proposition why should somebody come and work at your organization? And just like customers have got more choices than ever about where they choose to shop, about where they choose to buy their products or services from, you know, in the economy that is you know, booming, uh, employees have got just the same opportunity. So the question is about how organizations, how businesses set them up as being an employer of choice, where they, they breed and develop that loyalty with people. And if you look at the you know, top three reasons why somebody leaves an organization, two of the top three reasons are, number one, a lack of clash of, uh, with a line manager or leader. And the second one is there's a misalignment of the values of the organization with my own personal values. So you know, loyalty has to be earned, and organizations and businesses today have to be more focused than ever on how they really set themselves up to become an employer of choice. So let's talk about how do you become an employer of choice? How does that process work? What do you do to keep these so, cl- these employees? Yeah. So number one is um, about really having a compelling vision about what your organization is looking to achieve. So people are really looking for meaningful work that connects with a higher purpose around mission and purpose. So, for example, Google, um, you know, changing the way the world communicates one click at a time. If you walked into the reception and you're going to work at Google and there was a vision statement above the reception desk that said, you know, changing the way the world communicates one click at a time, and underneath it was a question that says, what are you going to do today in order to turn this vision into reality? I don't know about you, but that would certainly make the hair stand up on the back of my neck. It would certainly inspire me. It would certainly motivate me. You know, there's a great uh, American example of, you know, President Kennedy who's in NASA space station at uh, 6 o'clock in the morning, and he talks to one janitor who's sweeping the floor, and the guy, he asks him what he's doing, and he says, I'm putting a man on the moon. So it's about how you connect the work that somebody is doing on a daily basis with a compelling vision and purpose where they think they are really making a difference, where they're adding value, where they are doing meaningful work. 
which gets them to not just logically connect with the organization, but gets them to emotionally connect, where they come in every single day being the best version that they can be of themselves. So that is absolutely, I think, the first principle that can be, can be uh, any listener today can think about is that, you know, are they really creating a compelling vision and purpose for their organization and how they are connecting their employees to understand the work that they do in, in delivering that vision and purpose? So in order to accomplish that, you need to hire, you're, you're talking about those people who help to, who are um, hiring the employees, you talk about the managers, what kind of person do you need within an organization to be able to accomplish this to get your employees to connect? So, I mean, it starts, it starts with the business owner, the leader, the entrepreneur. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's as the owner of the business, as a senior leader in the organization, it's, it's your role to set the tone and pace, to set the vision for the organization, um, and to really, when you're looking at recruiting, to really connect people with, with that, that, that purpose and that vision. So, you know, the, the starting point has got to be with the leadership of the, of the business or the organization. That's absolutely the starting point of the journey. You, well, you mentioned Google as an example. What about other examples, ones that we're familiar with, where you have a leader who's in the who who is, as you're describing, uh, someone who runs the company who is able to do this? You know, there's a couple of examples that spring to mind. You know, I mean, um, you know, Starbucks and Howard Schultz is a great example in terms of you know a inspirational, charismatic leader. Um, Jeff Bezos, um, Amazon came out with a really interesting um, statement uh, about two months ago when he was talking about the annual review and how Amazon was performing. And it is really interesting in the report that he and the presentation that he did because one of the things he talked about was that Amazon will always think like a day one business. You know, when he was interviewed, he said, what do you mean we'll always think like a day one business? He said, you know, the hunger that got us on the first day that we set the business up, that hunger, the drive, the passion to serve customers, to build a business that was there to make a difference, to be an employer of choice, to really add value. He said, we will never lose that hunger and desire because the moment we lose that hunger and desire, then status sets in. Then, um, you know, complacency creeps in and then it's a journey of, you know, excruciating pain of terminal decline. And that whole mentality of thinking like a day one business is about how you maintain your relevance, how you keep your business fresh, and how you connect employees and your people and colleagues to come in every single day and do that meaningful work where they feel like they're growing every single day, where they feel like they're making a difference, and they're working for an organization that's doing great work. Yeah, well, as you describe in your book, I guess, in, in maybe one sentence, or the, uh, understanding your, uh, your people's why or your employees' why, I mean, which is that, it's one of the keys, um, as you say, to unlock this kind of motivational environment so people are under, understand what the, you need to understand what your employees' goals are, you need to understand that they, I guess, are in sync with the company, uh, yeah. and yeah, and, and that's critical. Uh, what companies Absolutely. haven't done that? I mean, you've mentioned, well, yeah, let's, you know, you talk about what a uh, terminal decline. That's a terrible word. But, uh, what companies have you seen go into terminal decline because they haven't done this? Yeah, so, I mean, I mean, there's a couple that spring to mind straight away. So, um, and it's interesting when I do a, do a leadership program, I put up some examples of values and I get people to guess which organizations they are. So um, one example was layman's back in 2008, and I put up the values which are about, you know, integrity, 
about respect and so forth. And, I, and then when you put layman's up, people are shocked. Um, Volkswagen is another great example, which, of course, have gone through um, terminal decline and are just on the, on, on the brink of survival. But, um, you know, with the emissions exposure, which I know has been big in America as well. So, you know, there are a number of examples of organizations who, you know, aren't living their values, who aren't um, really transparent, who aren't really building that trust brand out there in the marketplace, A, for customers, but also for, for their employees. And just, just going back to the point that you made earlier about, and it's a really um, key point that you made around um, understanding people's why. Um, and I think it's a really important point that if as a leader you can really understand what people's personal motivations are and what they're looking to achieve in their personal life. And you can connect the dots and help them to understand the link between the work that they do on a daily basis is an enabler to help them achieve what they want to achieve from a personal perspective. Then you truly get a connected and engaged employee. So let me give you a really simple example that I think brings that to life. Um, I always remember doing a speaking at a conference and I was talking about this whole concept of understanding people's why and I had this matrix on the screen and down the left hand side were motivations about why do people come to work is it about um, earning money is it about team contribution is it about feeling part of a team is it about bonus um, and, I, and I said to people if you put all your, the, your colleagues names across the top of this little matrix and I said to you out of those 10 motivational triggers if I got you to write your team members' names down and guess which of the motivational triggers you think apply to your people, how accurate would you be? And leaders just don't spend enough time really understanding the why, what makes their people tick, why they get out of bed, and, and why they do what they do. And, you know, one really simple example is one of the leaders on this program, they really took this to heart, and they went back and did one-to-one -one sessions with all their people. And they were talking to one of their team members, and this team member said, one of my goals is I want to earn a $15,000 or $15,000 bonus. And I've always said to them, you know, if somebody says you want to earn a $15,000 bonus, it's not the bonus that's important, it's what they can do with that money that's important. So they went a, a stage deeper in asking the question. And what transpired was the, the guy wanted to take his wife to Paris um, for the 20th wedding anniversary, and also they wanted to take the kids to Disney World. So what the uh, leader did was they went out to the Disney shop and they bought a little mini Mickey Mouse, and they stuck it on the corner of this um, person's desk and he said my goal is to help you get to Disney World to take your kids there and every week when they were having a conversation if the guy was really performing he would say to him you're a week closer to getting to Disney World and if he was off target then he would say you know my goal is to help you get to Disney World what do we need to do to get yourself back on track so that Disney little model of uh, Mickey Mouse became the anchor the hook about how that leader engaged with that individual understanding their motivational triggers their why to really understand how they could get them connected and make a difference. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's certainly a perfect example of personalizing. I guess what comes to mind is I'm thinking, can you do this with each one of your employees in a huge organization? I mean, how do you really accomplish that? Um, it, it seems daunting. It is, but I mean, the reality is in, in organizations, there will be layers of leaders who will have, you know, direct line responsibility for their, for their employees. So it's about how, um, you know, the staff, the example of the starfish on the, on the beach and there's thousands of starfish and, you know, the guy's throwing a starfish back into the sea and somebody walks along the beach and goes, why are you bothering doing that? There's thousands of starfish. How are you possibly going to make a difference? And he picks up one starfish and he throws it in the sea and he goes, I've just made a difference to that starfish. So how do you do it? You do it one conversation at a time. 
And, you know, part of our role as leaders in terms of being inspirational leaders is about how we unlock that potential. And you talked right at the start, which is so, so um, relevant, that one of the great assets walks out of our business every single day. And in delivering accelerated, sustained and profitable business growth, for most businesses, people are the enabler in order to achieve their sustained success. So therefore, investing the time in really um, harnessing the power of that resource that you have in being genuinely interested in their life and really getting them connected with the work that they do every single day should be one of the highest callings and responsibilities of leaders in any organization. What about uh, MBA programs? I mean, the the MBA programs that you're familiar with, are are they following, uh, you know, this this? organizational advice or following uh, what you're proposing or different MBA schools doing it differently or how does that work because then you know you have a whole pool of people who are going to come out I assume and, and be the leaders of these uh, organizations or companies yeah so Built to Grow is the culmination of two things, Catherine. It's, it's the culmination of two decades of us working in the marketplace, um, you know, building and helping leaders to grow their businesses. So from a bottom-up perspective. So all the ideas in Built to Grow come from a real-world perspective of what works in the real world of business. But sitting alongside that, you know, we have a lot of strategic partnerships with London Business School, um, with... Uh, Henley Business School with Warwick Business School. So, you know, we're pretty close to MBA programs and, and what they are teaching. Um, and a number of the universities in the UK have adopted Build to Grow and some of the methodologies and the principles that are in it um, as part of their curriculum because they really buy into that, you know, grounded, practical approach of what works in the real world of business. So, yeah, for a lot of, you know, MBA programs, the, the principles and the philosophies of Build to Grow are, are not mutually exclusive. Um, it's just that the way that we've come at it is from a very practical perspective of, you know, I've grown businesses, you know, I've had businesses that have succeeded, I've built businesses that have failed. So, you know, the stunning successes and the fantastic failures, you know, we've learned from, from a, uh, you know, the hard knocks of the real world. Uh, Royston, what about, uh, you know, it, we obviously uh, we are in the era of globalization. Uh, what about cultural differences? Are there cultural differences? Some with these say, multinational corporations or, or companies like uh, companies that are, you know, have major offices in the United States, the UK, India, wherever. I mean, do you find that there are guiding principles that are somewhat, well, some that are similar, but some that may be very different depending on the culture in which the business is growing? Yeah, so we're fortunate. I mean, we, our exposure is um, we've got bases and offices in 27 countries. So, you know, that's from South Africa to Asia. We do work in America, um, across a lot of the European countries. And you're absolutely right. There are some nuances which are different in terms of cultural nuances. However, the, the principles, the universal principles are not um, isolated to continents they are universal principles. The application of them might be slightly different in terms of how you engage. So, for example, I spend a lot of time in South Africa. You know, and then the South Africans, I don't know whether it goes back to their apartheid days and whether, you know, when they're freedom, but they are just absolutely hungry for information, for knowledge. So when you go to South Africa, you know, we have to peel back our content to about two-thirds because they want to spend so much time debating it um, they want to really talk it through, but they're so connected and hungry for information. So, yeah, I mean, the nuances are different, but the, but the principles, they are universal, timeless principles in terms of some of the stuff that we're talking about. 
All right, so these universal principles, one of them, and here's another one that you obviously that's very important. It's in your book. It's and we've uh, we've been talking about this, but making sure that you acknowledge your people's or your employees' emotional well-being. Um, because, you know, I think one of the things when we think about big business is, well, we get, get the emotions out of it. We shouldn't be talking about emotions. Do we really care about our employees' emotional well-beings or their relationships to their family and all those kinds of things? Because that's just going to impede the work they have to get done in business. Well, that's not true. So let's talk about that. How do you acknowledge your, your employees' well-being so that it works well for the employee and also for the company? Productive employees uh, equal uh, high-performing, sustainable business. And in order for employees to be productive, it's not just about them coming into work. It is a broader facet that organizations need to be looking at. And more organizations are awakening to the fact that they have an obligation. And obligation is a strong word, but in the context of this, I think it's really important that they have an obligation to be genuinely interested in the broader well-being of their of their employees that work for them every single day. Um, and that is about, you know, being genuinely interested in managing stress, about work commitments. You know, and interesting enough, I've been in with one client today um, where their employees are working 150, 200, even one person 211 hours in, 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 in a month. And, you know, what they're saying is that's not sustainable because, you know, it's not good for our employees. It's not good for their long-term health. So in really focusing on how you build loyalty, how you really retain great people. It's about making sure that you are focused on longevity and that you are managing personal resilience, that you are focused on uh, their broader well-being, um, because then when people know that you are genuinely interested in their broader life, they will bring the best version of themselves to work every single day, and it breeds the loyalty that you talked about earlier. So one of the examples I think that you talk about in the book is also the fact that like you encountered, because I like, you know, specific examples, maybe in different industries, you say you often encounter stressed managers in the hospitality trade. Talk to, okay, so why, what, what, what is it about the hospitality trade that is particularly stressful and, and uh, w- with these managers, for instance? So I think hospitality trade, I mean, you know, the reality for hospitality is it's a 24-7 business, 365 days a year. So when you look at the, the sheer volume of hours that people are working, um, you know, the, the sheer amount of time that they are on stage um, can create a, a tension and pressure in itself. And I think the reality as well, Catherine, is that, um, you know, in the olden days, um, businesses, you carried probably extra headcounts and you have more managers and leaders and people in the organization that you needed. But the challenge for businesses today is we are all trying to run so lean. Um, we don't have, we're not carrying extra people, and therefore people are more stretched than they've ever been. People are trying to do the work of one and a half or two people. They're working longer hours than they ever have done, and therefore that creates a tension and a pressure in itself. So this whole aspect of wellness and, you know, businesses are, are trying to run faster than they've ever run, the amount of change that we're dealing with in, change, in terms of the changing landscape. So the pressure and the tension on people is probably greater than it's ever been. And organizations need to be truly awake, uh, alert and awake to that and think about how they manage that within their overarching people strategy. Yeah, I think the pace of the word, you know, as you're talking, I'm thinking about the pace of things is so quickly and things change so quickly. And even, say, the yeah. hospitality business, for instance, 24-7. But in 24-7, you know, you, you could, it's, it's constant, it would seem to me, the, 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 uh, uh, the, the impact of all the stress on, in that, well, not just that business, all businesses, because things happen so quickly. 
and how do we adjust to that emotionally or how does our brain adjust to that? I mean, that's probably a whole other a show, but um, it, it's, how do you, how do you deal with that? Cause that's very different than it was, let's say before the internet, before 20, 25 years ago. Yeah. You, you, you sir. And, and you know, the challenge with the internet, what it's created is, you know, the technology revolution, as I call it, what it's created is something that, that is about immediacy. And through technology, there's an expectation that um, whether you send an email, you expect somebody to respond immediately. Um, and technology just created such an immediacy and, and, and has, has only driven that pace of responsiveness, of um, you know, customer needs and that immediacy that people want instant gratification. Um, so from an employer perspective, how you manage that, um, it's about prioritization. It's about really thinking about um, how you have people focused on the things that are really important. And, you know, from a personal perspective, it's about how you build your own personal resilience um, and recognize, you know, there are only so many things, there's only so many hours in the day, and it's about focusing on the things where are really worthy of your time and the things that are really going to make a difference in allowing you to be the best leader or manager that you can be and how you can really drive your business forward. I think we only have we have a few minutes left, but we have time for one of the uh, third principles that you des- that uh, you describe in your book. Set your people up for success. Um, do your people know what great performance looks like, feels like, and acts like uh, in their role, both be- a behavioral and numerical perspective? So, talk to us about that. Yeah. So. Um I think one of the challenges is, and we've probably all been there, where you are sat having a conversation with somebody, and you get half an hour through the conversation, and you suddenly sit back in your chair and you think, this conversation isn't going where I thought it was going to go. And on reflection, when you think about it, the reason the conversation isn't going where you wanted it to go was that the entry point into the conversation at the start, you were both in a different page about the expectation and what perception and reality was and what good performance looks like. So you're absolutely right. One of the questions which I think, and again, I use that word obligation, the obligation of organizations is to set their people up for success, not to set them up to fail. And setting somebody up for success is about saying to somebody, you know, do you know what great performance looks like in your role, A, from a behavioral perspective, but also from a performance perspective, and whether that's, you know, the key deliverables in their role or whether certain KPIs they've got to hit or performance measures, but they have absolute crystal clear clarity. Because when they have crystal clear clarity, then the conversations that you are having, again, is against the backdrop of the individual understanding what the expectation is and what the standard is. I'll give you a really simple example that brings this to life very quickly. One quick um, 30-second example. That's all we have time for. Yeah, go ahead. Okay, so I'll make make an even shortened example. That that is absolutely the obligation of organizations. Set your people up for success. Don't set them up to fail. And in setting them up for success, it's about, you know, going to all your employees and asking them that simple question. Do they know what great performance looks like from both a personal and behavioral perspective? And working with them until you're both on the same page about the expectation and what great looks like. Royston Guest, what a pleasure to have you on the show today. I want to mention your book one more time, Built to Grow, How to Deliver Accelerated, Sustained, and Profitable Business Growth. And can you give us the website that we can go to to get more information about the book and more information about you and what you do? Yeah, so the book is available on Amazon uh, in the UK and, 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 and in the States. And if people want to go to www.royston.guest.com, uh, uh, and also, if, if people hook on to Facebook or LinkedIn, I've got two groups on there, and they'll be able to pick up all my, my free videos and all the articles and the blogs that I produce as well. 
Great. Thanks so much for being on the show. Pleasure. Great to be with you. Thanks for your time. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts. We'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Aliens with Gas, we are the Extraterrestrial Rock Show, airing every Saturday afternoon on the VoiceAmerica.com Variety Channel. <laughs> Whatever happens out and about, it kind of dictates our conversation. For sure. And we like to tie in a little bit of the past and obviously keep it real current. And real current was a couple nights ago right here in Phoenix, a phenomenon happened. On Thursday night. Phenomenon. Do, 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 do. <laughs> phenomenon. Do, 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 do. Phenomenon. Do, do. All right, never mind. <laughs> That's every Saturday right here on the Voice America Variety Channel. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Uh, Joining me this morning is Dr. Vanessa Grubbs, MD, nephrologist, associate professor of medicine at UC San Francisco. Her new book is Hundreds of Interlaced Fingers, A Kidney Doctor's Search for the Perfect Match. One of two African-American women in her class at Duke University Medical School, Vanessa Grubbs, MD, switched her specialty from family practice to kidney specialist after meeting and falling in love with a man who had kidney disease, deciding to donate one of her own kidneys to him. To help him further, she pursues the male-dominated field of nephrology, facing a medical system rife with discrimination. Dr. Grubbs is featured on NPR, the New York Post, and the New York Times Book Review. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you here, Dr. Grubbs. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I, I, I read your book a few days ago, and it, it's, it's really you. a page-turner. <laughs> um, oh, great. I, Thank uh, you. Yeah, it was great. Uh, yeah, downloaded it on my iPad and uh, you know read it in about a, a day and a half, because uh, seriously, it is, it is a page-turner. It's interesting because it's a memoir. It is a love story. It is a modern love story. But at the same time, there's just a lot of uh, very... Um, I, I say facts, but a lot of information about end-stage kidney disease. Uh, so it's, it's, it's sort of two books in one, I would say. Um, but let's start with the memoir. Why did you decide to write this memoir, and why write it now? Well, truthfully, I really only intended, I started out uh, planning to write just about um, chronic kidney disease and the transition to end-stage kidney disease and the um, 
difficulties that we have in making decisions about dialysis and um, end-of-life care. And when I um, first pitched that to my literary agent, she said, uh, nobody wants to read a book about (laughs) death, dying, and dialysis, so you're going to have to put your personal story in it. So Mm -hmm. that's the true backstory for why the memoir part, I actually didn't start out planning to write it, but, um, you know, I I was fine with doing that. And I I get that it attracts people to the book, but in my mind, it it, it really wasn't that big of a deal. I, I was in love with someone who needed a kidney, and I had two, so... That's how I look at it, but I, I get that it's a it's kind of a big deal to everyone else looking in. Yeah, well, it's definitely a big deal. I mean, I was thinking about it in terms of myself. Would I do what you did? Um, you know, it is giving your kidney is a big deal. And what is it? Let me just get on the personal side of the story. Like, what was it that? You didn't seem to hesitate. I mean, you knew that that's what you wanted to do. Yes, you met this man. You're madly in love with him, but, you know, here you are, you're a doctor, you're accomplished, um, you know, you have all this stuff going for you, there are a lot of men who would want to be with you, and uh, you wouldn't have to put yourself in this kind of a position, so. <laughs> well, I, I didn't do it for the ring, but um, I, I don't know, it's, um, it was just something that I felt was the right thing to do, and I really didn't think about um, all the things that could go wrong. In my mind, it was going to be fine. And um, so I I really didn't worry about it. Um, And, you know, I I also had um, a little boy. My my son was, you know, about four years old at the time. So I just assumed that, you know, my sister would come out and watch him and I would go in the hospital and be back to him in, you know, a couple days or so. And um, I can't really explain how I, I felt so sure about it, um, but that was what my heart and gut um, were telling me. And um, you know, I'm um, a bit of a well, I'm, I'm definitely a country girl at heart. I'm from North Carolina, and so you know, I don't believe in all the the different superstitions, but I do hold on to some of the things in terms of signs. And there were a couple of signs that really, for me, reinforced that I was doing the right thing. All right, so what were those signs? I was going to add the word that you. there's a little bit of, you're also somewhat of a romantic. I don't know if that's the right word, but um, so what were those signs? I mean, you had support, right, from your girlfriend, from most people in your life, most yeah. of the important people. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, from some people. There, the reactions were very interesting. But in terms of the signs for me, um, the first sign um, was when my husband, whose name is um, Robert Phillips, he told me about how he um, initially researched the idea of, you know, just trying to find out more about kidney transplant. He hadn't really heard anything from the doctor taking care of him, so he looked into things on his own and came across that the longest living um, person with a um, living uh, kidney uh, uh, transplant um, was also named Robert Phillips. And it, to me, this was, oh, so that, <laughs> this is how I took it, that, okay, that is a sign that things were, that he, my Robert was going to get a kidney and things would go well for him. The sign that it, the kidney should come from me wasn't until um, several months later, um, I had already had the thought that, okay, I'm going to donate a kidney. Um, and I had started the process 
of um, seeing if I would be an appropriate match. But I was sitting in a pediatrician's office. Um, my son was, you know, just for a well kid check. And I was flipping through one of those little magazines that they have in the um, the rooms, like, you know, I don't know, like Women's Day, Family Circle, those kind of things. And I flipped into one of them, like, you know, like three, four pages. And I, there was a story about the 50th anniversary of Robert Phillips' uh, transplant. And to me, that was just the absolute ultimate sign. I, it might seem silly to others, but for me, it was like, okay, I came across this article for a reason. This man, um, you know, of course, they, they had only the name in common. I think this man was from Virginia, and um, he's a white man. He got a transplant from his sister, um, but they, they weren't really even the same blood type, but he um, somehow he was lucky enough for everything to um, uh, work out well, and he was still going strong. So for me, that solidified it. Well, it's interesting because here you are, I have to reiterate, a physician, a scientist, um, you know, you're sort of, here you are kind of at the top of your game, and yet all this, uh, you get, you, what are you looking at? not cosmopolitan to kind of validate what you're um, just about to do. But uh, <laughs> I know I get it. But I was going <laughs> um, to, let's talk about Robert because he had been, he uh-huh. had had kidney disease for a long time and now he had reached mm-hmm. the point where he was on dialysis and uh, let, let, not a lot of people know what dialysis is. Now I'm a social worker and you did mention social worker in the book and who, um, social workers that you've worked with but and did work on a dialysis unit many years ago um, and it was over 20 years ago so probably things have changed but I do remember I mean dialysis was uh, the unit itself was at that time um, not only difficult for the patients and their families but that there was a social worker for the staff because they often became depressed and upset and it was a, you know, that things could go wrong so quickly. And there was, I don't know if that's exactly the same today, but um, let's talk about dialysis because that's what Robert was on. And then hopefully Mm -hmm. he was in the, yeah, going to get a transplant. um, He was um, first diagnosed with um, his kidney um, condition when he was um, just 15 years old. It was just part of a, um, a sports physical where they um, dip a urine sample. And um, it, from there, they discovered what his condition was, which is something that um, is um, passed on like a hereditary thing. There may be some environmental things that um, um, can cause it as well. I talk about the detail in the book. Um, but when he was 26 years old, his kidneys failed completely. And that's when he started dialysis. And for him, it, it was, you know, it was not only really difficult physically because um, it, it often takes a while for people to um, not only um, physically but um, kind of mentally adjust to, like, this is my life now. Um, he would struggle with um, the um, uh, requirements to really restrict your fluid intake um, because, um most people, once they start dialysis, they um, they have very little. They produce very little urine, but and then over time, it it goes away completely for most people. Maybe just a few drops a day, and yeah. so that means um, for for him, he was on the 
in-center hemodialysis, which is the most commonly used in this country where people just go three times a week. And if you only go three times a week and you don't pee, then everything you drink, um, all liquid stays inside you until the next time when you go to dialysis and that fluid is removed. So it, and he always found himself thirsty. So if he overdid it, he would get a lot more swelling. He could sometimes feel short of breath from like fluid building up in his lungs. And he would um, vomit um, often, particularly over the um, weekend when there was an extra day between his dialysis treatments. Hemodialysis is what they do in hospitals, you're saying, like three times a week. Then there's another kind, perinatal dialysis, which you can do at home and you can do it every day for short periods of time. So... Um, well, um, so the the kind that most people do, it is um, it's not really the hospital that's considered an outpatient um, procedure. There's um, these dialysis centers, and um, but yes, peritoneal dialysis is something that people do at home. It's it's not through the blood. It's through um, a tube that's in the um, the abdominal cavity, like in the space between your intestines and the skin. And, um, you know, truthfully, most, um, oh, you can also do hemodialysis at home as well. That's something that will be done six days a week. And there's a study published, gosh, I want to say in 93, where they asked um, nephrologists if a kidney transplant wasn't readily available for them. And, you know, hypothetically, if you had um, kidney failure, um, what, uh, what kind of dialysis would you do? And 93% chose um, peritoneal or home hemodialysis. And I think some of that, the reason for, and I, I would certainly agree, some of the reason for that is because, you know, that the, the types that become uh, doctors and nephrologists, you know, we can be very uh, type A and like to have the ultimate control over things. And, and you do, when you do your dialysis at home, you control your own schedule. Um, but I think the bigger reason is that um, your body is more even. If you're having dialysis every day, um, that is much more um, consistent with what the the normal body would do. Our kidneys are working all day, every day. Um, when you go to a center three times a week, you're getting three or four hours of, you know, so, um, uh, uh, kind of a mock kidney. And um, that can be very hard on the body. And, you know, trying to take the Dr. place Grubbs, of what I have to, I want to just interrupt you because I want to, because I didn't ask you this in the beginning, but how many people in the United States are on dialysis? Well, we have um, roughly half a million people across the country who have end-stage kidney disease and are on dialysis and probably another 100,000 who have um, working kidney transplants. Um, and so those numbers seem pretty small when you think about the grand scheme of things, but it, um, in terms of what can go on, but it is um, a, a really huge problem when you think in terms of, you know, the, you know, kind of the, how people feel with the disease, with the illness, how, um, how um, much it costs and the death that is associated with it. Um, you know, a lot of people assume, oh, um, at least it's not cancer, but in truth, Kidney failure, uh, how the likelihood of dying from kidney failure is um, roughly twice that of most kinds of cancers. So it's it's a very, very serious um, problem that I don't think most people truly realize. 
And what's really and I think from a social work from because you do mention this in the book too, but as a social worker, I, I think that the the emotional and the sociological and the family kind of dynamics that go on when you have a person in your family or a loved one who's dependent on a machine to live. Right. Uh, yeah. And I, I, two things came to mind when you were talking about doing dialysis at home, where the whether is parent needle parent. I never pronounce that right. Uh, or hemodialysis. I, I always remember that the person themselves needs help, needs support or help from someone, and that mm-hmm. the person who was maybe administering that help uh, didn't feel capable of doing it, or if something went wrong, they felt guilty. Uh, so there's all mm-hmm. stuff, yeah, and that was always an issue, and I would assume it's still an issue today. I mean, you. Um, Yeah, I I wish that we had more system supports in place to make that an easier transition for people. But um, I think people are more afraid of it than is warranted. Um, um, A lot of people on peritoneal dialysis, they can do it themselves. And really, um, what we... um, one of my colleagues tells people, and I find myself adopting that, is that, you know, if you can um, follow a um, recipe and brush your teeth, then you can do peritoneal dialysis because you really just need to um, be able to see well, um, you know, follow the same instructions every time, every day, and be able to um, move your fingers like um, the, the what we call manual dexterity, being able to make, you know, twist on a cap or that kind of thing. So for... Um, it becomes a real problem for older people who um, might have issues with those, and they do need a support person. And that often prevents people from being able to do dialysis at home when they don't have that support person. And I think for the patient, it does bring up a lot of issues of feeling like they've become a burden um, for their family members and um, just the psychological um, part of you know, not that long ago, being able to be fully independent, taking care of themselves to being in this place where all of a sudden you you need um, someone. So, um, yeah, it is a tremendous um, emotional and psychological adjustment for um, patients and their families. Yeah, and especially young people. And I was thinking of, well, in, in your 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 example with your husband. I mean, Robert was young, very young. I mean, you want to travel, you want to go places. You always have to plan. I assume, like how you're going to get your dialysis, or where you're going to get it, or there are certain right. places that you just can't go to. That 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 you're limited by your disease, not by your right. age. That's or you, true. Some people assume that you can't travel at all once you start dialysis. That's not true. Um, you can um, uh, travel. It just takes some planning, and you're right. Some uh, places in the world, um, it's much, much harder to do, and people have to, the government doesn't pay for it like it's done here, so you'd have to pay out of pocket for it, and so, you know, that can be very, very expensive. And, um, you know, for Robert, he was only 26 when he started dialysis, and, you know, you know imagine... You know, I'm trying to think back to when I was 26 years old, you, you think you're in the prime of your life. You're just really thinking about um, what you want to be when you grow up and where you're going to go. And you, you're thinking about finding a partner and all that kind of thing. And for him, it was just completely, you know, taken off path. And all of a sudden, he really couldn't plan for the future. And he wasn't really sure that you know, he was going to find um, a partner. And, you know, when we started dating, I think it was our first date or maybe it was our second date. He told me that he didn't have a lot of second dates because 
um, a lot of the women that he, um, well, pretty much all of the women that he came across, they were just completely freaked out by him uh, being on dialysis. And, you know, when he had, um, when he used to get his dialysis through a catheter, you know, that's like this plastic that's hanging partially out of your body. And then when he went on to have a fistula, which is nothing, you know, it's just your own blood vessel, um, two of them connected so that one gets um, stronger and, um, and and big enough for the dialysis needles. But it's still, um, you know, it makes people feel self-conscious to have this kind of snake looking thing on their arm. And, and it can, I, in his experience, it was scary for the women that he um, 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 tried to date. So I think that was one of the big um aspects for the two of us getting involved because since I was already a doctor and I had had some experience um, with um, dialysis patients in the hospital, um, it, it wasn't, um, you know, a, a deal breaker for me. I just, for me, I just needed to know that he was um, healthy, you know, considering um, because I had seen lots of dialysis patients who they, they're in the hospital because they're in trouble and because and, and things can go really badly in terms of infection and the, um, their access, the way that we connect them to um, dialysis um, machine would not be working. And if that's not working, then you're not going to be able to um, survive very long. So um, for me, it, as long as his dialysis access was in good working order I, and you know, I felt like, okay, I can, I can move forward and, and date him. So I think that was a, a big difference in terms of how the two of us could um, move forward. Well, what about the fact that, okay, what comes to mind, especially it related to, to him, you know, that whole issue of body image as, you, as you're describing mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. Um, something that you obviously understood because you're a physician or just because of also because of who you are. Um, let's talk about, because one of the, themes of the book obviously is the disparity of of health care uh and i mentioned it in the beginning discrimination um because at some point discrimination in terms of the kind of care you get if you're black or you're brown uh or the uh i i think it was whites get are, are transplants now tell me if i'm on the statistics twice as often if you're white than if you're black is that is that correct? I, I don't, um. Yeah. So, um, you know, at the time, um, black and whites made up about a third uh, each of the kidney transplant um, waiting list. So a third of the waiting list was blacks, a third was whites. And But um, uh, whites got every other available kidney, whereas um, blacks only got about one in five of the available kidneys. So that meant that on average, blacks were waiting um, about two years longer than whites for a kidney transplant. And, you know, I've certainly learned for, from experience that two years is a, can be a very long time and it can be the difference between living and not living or, you know, the quality of life um, being um, okay to miserable or being pretty good. So two years is um, a very big deal. And, you know, I've since learned that lots and lots of things um, factor in to why we um, have these um, types of race disparities in kidney transplant. Um, but, yes, it's, it's a very um, kind of serious and, and stark thing. But as I understand it, that's something that you – part of your – what you're doing in terms of uh, your work 
is to uh, eliminate some of those disparities with the groups that you work with? Well, that was the motivation for going into nephrology in the first place. Now, you know, I was a primary care doctor, and I really, when I started, when I went to medical school, I planned to, um, after all my training, to go back to a small town, North Carolina, and just kind of hang up my shingle and take care of anything that um, bothered people. Um, but, you know, life happens, and here I am in, you know, big city, California, um, in, in a specialty. And so I, I never planned to specialize. Um, but after uh, the going through the process of um, trying to get a kidney transplant with Robert, for him, my solution was to give him one of mine. But for everybody else, um, I, I really wanted to work in the area of trying to, uh, you know, really look at why we have these barriers and what we could do about them. Um, and, you know, since I've been in the field, um, my eyes have been very much open to all the nuances about kidney transplant. Um, race disparities, but I also um, came across um, all the difficulties around the decision-making for dialysis and the end-of-life thing, so that um, has ultimately become my um, true passion in the the day-to-day work that I do, but of course, I'm still very much concerned about the the issues around kidney transplant, and so, um, you know, every opportunity to talk about those issues, I, I, um, I think, are important as well. I think you mentioned, don't you, in the book that uh, doctors, this is terrible, to, uh, but make more money if they keep their patients on, on uh, dialysis rather than yeah, giving them... We have, it, um, we have a, yeah, we have a lot of problems in our healthcare system. <laughs> and even though I, I would, um, I think for the most part, um, um, my colleagues, we, we do things because we think they're in the best interest of our patients. And some of the system things are set up in 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 um, hopes of delivering the best care to patients. So the the government has set these um, you know payment standards. So and you would think if you if you say um, people have to people on the in center hemodialysis if you um, regulate that they have to be seen four times a month, you would assume that they're getting better care than if they were only seen once a month. So that's kind of the reason behind it. But in reality, you know, people are not. It's not like you're doing intensive visits every time, and um, and you definitely do get paid. Um, a lot more than if you see the person one time versus four times in a month. And, um, and a nephrologist doesn't even have to do all four of those visits. Uh, a lot of centers have um, physician assistants. So the nephrologist is actually only doing one visit, and the physician assistant is seeing the patients the other three times. So, and it's Well, there are so many more that, issues that we have to, di- that I would love to discuss with you. We have one minute left. There's, there's a lot oh, more. Wow. But, so that, I want people. Fast. Okay. Yeah, this was for me too. But I want so I want to. Your, your book is hundreds of interlaced fingers. A kidney doctor's yes. search for the perfect match, and you can download that, which is what I did on my iPad and read it. Bookstores everywhere, Amazon. Give us a website that we can go to for more information about the book and about you. Well, I have a, a website called uh, thenephrologist.com. The nephrologist, um, and that's with a P H, not a F. 
Um, and that started at, out as a blog three, four years ago, and now it's a fully expanded website where people can um, download the first chapter of the book for free. I also have a free available discussion guide, particularly for people who are part of book clubs. And you can see the links for um, buying the book from uh, places like Amazon through the publisher, HarperCollins, um, Barnes & Noble, etc. Great. Thanks so much, Dr. Vanessa Grubbs, <clears throat> for being on the show this morning. Thank you so much for um, having me and um, allowing me the opportunity to talk about all these various issues a bit. Great. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox.